Like many of you, I was surprised this last week to learn that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev died. I was surprised because I thought he was already dead. <laughs> As a young teenager, I had a poster in my bedroom. On one side was Ronald Reagan, all decked out as a cowboy gunslinger, and on the other side was Mikhail Gorbachev wrapped up in a, a bearskin rug, almost looked like a bear. And essentially it was a, a, a parody of Reagan's great uh, phrase about the uh, USSR being the evil empire. And Reagan was the hero, of course, Gorbachev as the uh, leader of the USSR, he was the leader of the evil empire, but it really made me pause and think today how interesting empires are. Empires come and go, and the USSR has gone the way of the British Empire, which has gone the way of the Japanese Empire, which has gone the way of the Incan Empire, and the Roman Empire, and the Babylonian Empire. And if history is any guide, someday the United States will join these former world powers and watch a new empire rise to take our place. In the words of verse 27, the nations and the states in which we often trust, those are often and can be shaken. But there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if you are in Christ, you are part of that kingdom. And belonging to that kingdom means that a Chinese pastor who is imprisoned and tortured for his faith can confidently warn his guards that one day they will answer to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that an Iranian Christian who is cut off by her family and friends perhaps even subject to a so-called honor killing, she can know that in the last day, she will not be forsaken. Because we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, all of us, no matter our relative peace or prosperity in this life, we must all fix our eyes, like the Old Testament saints in chapter 11, we must all fix our eyes fix our hope and fix our faith, not on the things of this world, but on the city whose maker and whose builder is God. There is a danger, however, in trying to make the kingdom of God an external thing, something that is here and now that we can measure by human standards. That's, of course, what the disciples struggled with, isn't it? After Jesus is crucified and resurrected from the dead, before he ascends to heaven, they gather up with Jesus and they go, well, now what? Uh, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now are you going to ascend the throne? Now are you going to knock some Roman heads together and actually be the kind of Messiah we always hoped you would be? This is the same thing that this congregation is struggling with receiving this letter from their pastor. As Christians, they had forfeited what seemed to be the only physical manifestation of God's presence and power in the world. They had turned away from the temple. They had turned away from the law. 
They had turned away from the priesthood and from the land. They gave it all up in pursuit of a crucified Savior. Now they were tempted to go back. To go back to a kingdom that could be seen. A kingdom that could be touched. A kingdom that was brilliant in its beauty. A kingdom that could be measured. A kingdom that could be used. And in response, our preacher tells them that the kingdom of God isn't a tangible, physical reality. At least not yet. In this in-between time, between Christ's ascension into heaven and his glorious return, the kingdom is a spiritual reality. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you get uncomfortable. And I think a lot of it is because we struggle with being materialists. We think that if it isn't physical, it's not real. But when I say that it's a spiritual reality, when our preacher says that we can't touch this kingdom, we need to understand that it is more real than anything else in our lives, and that in fact, every part of our life needs to be given to it in service to that kingdom and to that king. And this morning, I want to see three things with you from Hebrews chapter 12. First, what exactly has passed away? Second, what replaced it? And third, what are we supposed to be doing? What are we doing with this kingdom? So first, what has passed away? Look at verse 18 again with me. Starting in verse 18, our preacher asks his congregation to go back into their memories, to recall what happened during Israel's wilderness wanderings when she got to Mount Sinai. And we read about this history in the book of Exodus, and so I'm going to actually ask you, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to start reading for you at verse 16. And you're going to hear a lot of similarities between Hebrews 12 and Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, starting at verse 16. On the morning of the third day were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine the sights and the sounds, the overwhelming sensory event that was the giving of the law on Mount Sinai? Skip down to Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. That's what's happening here in, Ex in Hebrews chapter 12. He's reminding his congregation that 
in the past, God had established the kingdom of Israel through the giving of the Mosaic law at Mount Sinai. There at Mount Sinai, the people of God were constituted as the visible kingdom of God on earth. That kingdom had borders. That kingdom had laws. Laws that governed their ceremonies, their worship, and it had civil laws that governed every part of their life. That kingdom was tangible, that kingdom was sensory, that kingdom was physical and visible. Whether you were at the city gate in your little town or you were at the temple, whether you were in your home in the privacy with your family or, where you, or if you were with the community on a big feast day in the city streets of Jerusalem, every part of your life, every part of society was defined by the kingdom that was established through the Mosaic Covenant. That's the kingdom that has passed away. The covenant has passed away, and that kingdom has gone with it. It's the entire point of the book of Hebrews. There is no priesthood anymore. There is no ceremonial law anymore. There is no human mediator anymore. There is no geopolitical theocracy to point to as if to say there is the kingdom of God in all of its glory, in all of its greatness, in all of its power, in all of its strength. It was made obsolete by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because it was a type and it was a shadow that was pointing forward to the heavenly kingdom that Jesus himself instituted. What replaced it then? If that's gone away, what has replaced it? Look at verse 22. Starting at verse 22, our preacher describes the kingdom that has come. In verse 18, he says, you have not come to this previous kingdom. In verse 22, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion, of course, was the site of the temple in Jerusalem. Back in January of 2020, when our group went to Israel, one of the, the fascinating things to me was to see the ancient city of Zion, the ancient city of Jerusalem. Just a tiny, tiny sliver of a population, but it hugged Mount Zion. It's as if all of the blessings from the temple just kind of flowed down the mountain to the people. There, the capital city would spread around the temple, and Paul here, or whoever the preacher is, whoever the writer is, like Paul, he says something similar to Paul in Galatians. He sees Mount Zion here as a symbol, as a type of the heavenly reality. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, but he's not saying you've come to Jerusalem, He's not saying you've gotten on a boat and you've made your way across Palestine to the city, to the capital of Jerusalem. He says you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come not to this earthly city, to an earthly temple, but you've come to a heavenly temple. 
And just like the ancient Israelites ascended Mount Zion to worship God in his temple, he's telling us that we too, we who worship God, who trust in Jesus Christ, now we have complete access to a heavenly city where Jesus is always present as our eternal high priest. And there, what are we going to find? Verse 22 again. We're going to find innumerable angels in festal gathering. Angels dressed up for a party. That's what that means. Deuteronomy 32 tells us that countless angels attended God during the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Angels were scary things. But here we read that the angels have gathered to celebrate. Friends, what a stark contrast this is to the terror that the Israelites experienced. We go on in verse 23. We've come to angels in that heavenly Jerusalem. We've also come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Any idea what that is? It's you. It's you and me. All of those who haven't yet died, but who in Paul's language are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 10 that we should rejoice because our names are written in heaven. Verse 23, we've come to the innumerable angels, we've come to the assembly of the firstborn, we have come to God the judge of all. Why that description? Of all of God's attributes, of all of God's actions, why do we focus on God's judgment? Well, this description of God as judge, I think, is highlighting God's activity of judgment that dominates the description of the end times. When you die at the turning point of the ages, God ascends his throne and he judges between nations. He judges people. And I think that what our preacher is trying to get at here is that God's judgment has already been pronounced over you. And so that when you come to God as judge, you're not coming in anticipation of a judgment that is yet to be pronounced. No, as Jesus says in John chapter 5, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We've come to angels. We've come to the assembly of the firstborn. We've come to God, the judge of all. Verse 23, we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect following close after this idea of God's judgment that's made manifest in this, in this life, we have a description of those who have died in faith. And how are they described? They are already perfect. They've already been perfected. Nothing is lacking in their relationship with God. But we know from other parts of Scripture that they are also waiting. They're waiting for the resurrection of the dead so that their perfect spirits are joined with a perfect glorified body verse 24 we've come to jesus the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of abel friends this is so important 
who was the mediator of the old covenant that passed away? It was Moses, right? Where did Moses die? Outside the promised land. Moses died outside the promised land. He was not able to usher the people of God into the promised land. He couldn't even enter into the land that God had led them to. But the way into the kingdom is paved by Jesus. Jesus is our forerunner. Jesus is the mediator who secures our way to God. He is the one who sustains us and keeps us safe until we reach the end of our pilgrimage. The first kingdom has passed away. A new kingdom has taken its place. That's the kingdom that you belong to. That's the city in which you worship. These are your fellow citizens and co-heirs. So what are you supposed to do? Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Friends, the very first thing that I want you to see here is that this kingdom isn't something that you are building. You are not bringing this kingdom about. This kingdom is out of your control. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that we are made partakers of the kingdom, that we inherit the kingdom, that we are given the kingdom. Here, the kingdom is a gift that is given to us. And that's why we, in turn, out of gratitude, worship God in reverence and awe. But hear me. Worship isn't just a private and personal act. Worship is a public and political act. Each and every Sunday, we engage in a political act more potent than anything we will ever see a president do on primetime TV. By fixing our eyes on Mount Zion, we confess that our destiny isn't going back to what was lost. Instead, our destiny is rushing toward us. A kingdom that is already breaking in on us. Now that confession, it's foolish to the outside world. It's foolish to those rulers who only understand the physical act of power, whose kingdoms survive as long as they are in control. But friends, by living public lives of gratitude and worship, we inhabit our office of ambassador. We inhabit our office of herald. And we testify to the world that there is something greater and that there is something richer, there is something deeper, there is something fuller than what can be seen. The kingdom is breaking in on us every time we gather together to hear a fallen, fallible man preach God's word. To taste bread and wine to feel the waters of baptism the kingdom is present in its power the 
powers of the age to come come crashing through this present evil age. When we care sacrificially for those who are overlooked by the rulers of this passing age, when we belong to a communion of saints that defies the affinities of this world, we are already indwelling a new creation that will be consummated when Jesus comes back. In our songs, in our prayers, in our service, we testify to another king who makes his subjects co-heirs and fellow children of his father. And then as we are scattered back into the world as salt and light, as we pursue our callings as children and parents, as lawyers and politicians, as doctors and homemakers, as teachers and students, as we volunteer, as we vote, as we coach, in all of those things, we serve our neighbors and we testify of a better king and a better kingdom. And all along, as we do those things, you and I are assured that we belong to Zion. Let's pray. Father, we long to have something that we can point to and say, see, I'm not foolish. My belief is rational. It's, it's based in something that should be feared and respected. We long to have a kingdom that we can parade in front of the other kings of this world. And yet you tell us that that kingdom is hidden hidden in the power of a crucified Savior, hidden in bread and wine and preaching and baptism, hidden in the acts of service and love that we give not just to one another but to our community. One day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Father, may we be harbingers of that day. Make us a beachhead of the kingdom that is coming and is already here. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.